your Bibles to the book of John chapter 10. John chapter 10. So we're picking up in verse 22, and I will work my way through the rest of the chapter. So John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. So by way of introduction, let me share with you what my objective is for today, just again so that we can stay in the same lane and all trek together. So here's the objective, to understand key doctrinal teachings that emerge from this text. Simple as that. To understand key doctrinal teachings that emerge from this text. And this is what we always do. We always we always go through these doctrines, you know, any any anything there that there is that 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 we are being taught from the scriptures, we are we are investigating those. We're trying to unpack those. We look at the mechanics of those things, how those things apply to us. But today there's about five, not that we will uh, separate those point to point, but there are five that at least will be referenced and some uh, considerably looked at. There are five that stand out in this text. Before I, I'll read the text as we go today, but I want to just let you know the five that are there, just right out of the gate, predestination, election, security of the believer, and uh, security of the believer, I have these written down, sorry, the sovereignty of God and the deity of Christ. So those five are all intertwined. This is a rich, rich text. You're always getting some kind of doctrinal statements or positions in any text that you read for the most part, whether it's direct or indirect, but these are very, very strong. Okay, very strong. So as I went through this once, twice, three times, four times, I started identifying different things that I wanted to stop and pay Sirius said, Sirius said she doesn't understand my, something's making noises up here, but my phone's down there, whatever. Um, so if it's my phone, is it, okay. Um, anyway, so these are the five doctrines that stand out to us. So here's the text. The text is John chapter, 20, chapter 10, verse 22. We'll start there. And it says, at this time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Okay, so what you need to know, a few things about this text just to help set the scene for you. We are about halfway, we are about halfway through the Gospel of John, keeping in mind that John's Gospel is written as what? An apologetic for the deity of Christ. This is over and over and over again. Today will be the very same thing where we are shown the deity of Christ. And this is the point, this is the hobby horse of John so that these things are written so that you may believe. Believe what? who Christ says he is, namely God. So this is important for you to understand. This text marks the halfway point. It marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. There's going to be a shift here in Jesus' ministry. He starts ministering more to individuals or to small groups, namely the disciples for the most part. But here's the end of his public ministry right here. One pastor said this is about three months prior to his crucifixion. And so to give you an idea of where we are in the story, what has happened so far over a certain amount of time, and then what's to come in the next short while. 
So that's setting up the scene. But something interesting takes place. Before we get into these doctrinal statements, these doctrinal positions that I want to show you in the text, something interesting happens. And this is in order to set up the scene. Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews, they gathered around him, as they have done many times. The Jews have what so far? They've been exposed to many things from the Savior. They've been exposed to both his works and to his words. They've seen miracles. They've heard statements that they believe to be outlandish with regards to Christ and his person and his ability, namely that he is is God. And so they've been exposed to these things, which we'll see in just a second, and listen to what they say on this occasion. When they approach Christ, they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? How long are you going to play riddles with us? Speak plainly. You and I look at this text and we see um, there's 10 chapters of him speaking very plainly. There's 10 chapters worth of miracles that speak very plainly to the person of Christ because just uh, not just anybody off the street can show up and say, you know what, I'll feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. You know, not many people will show up off the street and say, you know what, this guy was blind or he has been infirmed for 38 years and I'll just speak healing into his life. There aren't people that can just do that. There have been, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Read Acts, it's a fantastic read. But all by the Spirit of God, all under the power of God and the sovereignty of God. And these Jews, these unbelieving, doubting Jews, they approach Jesus and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? Listen, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly that you're the Christ. And Jesus answered them. He said, I told you, and yet you do not believe. Just to recall some of these works, just to recall some of what we've already seen. Listen to this. He healed a blind man, and the blind man does what? He worships Jesus. He feeds 5,000, right? He changes water to wine. I know that was some time ago. By the way, this is my 30th sermon on John in this series, and Austin has, you know, every, every fourth week there his to tack onto that. So we've We've been in John for a while, you know, we're, we're well over half a year in John, and we're just almost halfway through John, so we've got, we've got some time more to get into this. So water to wine, Jesus walked on water in the book of John. He healed the nobleman's son in this gospel. He healed the invalid of 38 years at the pool. All of these things have happened, just his works have been on display, but not just his works, But his words, and a lot of these Jews, I don't know who was in that company at the time, but but there was no denying the fact that there was a buzz that was created by Jesus. There were always witnesses to the things that he had done. They couldn't figure it all out, some believe, many did not. But they all knew these things. They knew what he taught. They couldn't deny the fact that he taught with a certain type of authority. He taught in a certain way that was different than the Pharisees, and that was different than the religious elite. It was different than those who were educated in religion. So those are his works. What about his words? His, self, his self-identifying statements towards his own deity. He declared we see the declaration of his Sabbath lordship in John chapter 5. The declaration of his oneness with the Father in John chapter 5, and he does it again here in John 10. The declaration of his power in John 5 as well. There's more, 
preceding uh, John 5, but these were just, uh, these came out. The, the declaration of his justice and his power in John chapter 5. Namely, he says, the father judges no one but has given judgment to whom? The son. That's a declaration. That's a self-identifying statement of his own deity. Because only God can judge in that sense. The declaration of his worth in John chapter 5, the list goes on and on and on. But at this point, it didn't matter how clearly or how plainly Jesus spoke to them. He had already shown them miraculous deeds. He had already spoken words of life over and over and over and over again. And what is their position? What is their posture? Unbelief. And Jesus says something that's fairly interesting to them. He says this, after they say, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them. He said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. And he said, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep sheep. I want you to hold on to that because it's easy to just kind of pass over that statement. Okay, yeah, they, well they're not, they're not Christians, so of course they don't believe. That's just logical, you know. If you don't believe, you're not a Christian because it takes belief to be a Christian, right? I mean, that's how this, this game works, right? Not that it's a game, but you understand. That's how this works. You have to believe. Belief is necessarily tethered to Christianity, which is tethered to regeneration, which is tethered to the gift given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So all these things are linked together, as we'll see later, but they did not believe, and Jesus says, here's the reason. Because you're not my sheep. You're not. So then it begs the question, what does that mean? Does that mean that, um, does that mean that, well, does that mean that they will believe and then become sheep? Does that mean that if they believe first, then they will become sheep? Does it mean that he'll make them sheep and then at that point they'll believe? What does that, what does that mean? And I think it's here where the doctrines of predestination and the doctrines, doctrine of election come into play. Now let me say this. Because I know we're recorded and I don't know where everybody is on this. We might be somewhat divided to a degree. That's fine. Let me say a few things. And I say this with, with humility. My responsibility and Austin's responsibility is to preach and teach the whole counsel of God's word. That's what we're to do. Now, I will hopefully never be someone that will approach something that could be difficult that could be a hard pill to swallow and just choose to ignore it because I don't want to stir the pot. I'm not afraid of stirring pots. But more than that, I have a mandate to preach and teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And I can't in good conscience read past a text where Jesus says, hey, you've been shown the gospel. You've been, or you, or you've been shown my works. I've told you who I am, and yet this is where you arrive every single time. And you arrive there because you're not my sheep. I think we have to look further to see what does he mean by that? How does this happen? What's the order of all of these things? What, how do we look at this and through the right lenses? And the two doctrines that come into play here are the doctrines of election 
and predestination. These are not words that I'm afraid of, by the way. Not at all, because they're Bible words. I've heard that many, many, many years. There are churches that are divided over these issues, and when I say divided, I mean literally divided. Literally, a church leaves or splits or whatever for these issues. But these are Bible words, people. Do you understand that? And I have been impressed with several things with our body over the years, one of them being the, 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 the integrity, the humility, and the respect that you all seem to have for the Word of God as it is taught. You may not agree with everything that I've ever said, especially on tertiary issues, but we can have discussion and say, okay, let's, let's you know, Let's sharpen one another on this. Let's talk about that. So before I get into this section of this, I want to be very clear. You are free to talk to me about any of this. You are free to talk to Austin about any of these things. But I want you to understand that we're not going to shy away from this. This, I think, is very clearly taught right here in the Scriptures because I don't see another way to understand Jesus' statement. And we're not just going to ignore that it's there. So here is, in a nutshell, what... The doctrine of election teaches. Here's two views, two predominant views. One is that you become his elect, Bible word, many places in the scripture. Any time it says God's chosen or God's elect, give or take different contexts, but for the most part, any time it says these things, this is what it's referring to. One view says that you become his elect when you are saved. So who's his elect? Christians. I would absolutely 100% agree that everyone who is a Christian is elect. No question about it. The other view says this. You are a Christian. You are saved because you were first elected. You see, there's a difference. Are you saved because you're elect or are you elect because you are saved? And I get it. It's a fun little phrase to turn for seminarians to drive themselves mad during lunch at seminary. I get all that. I've been there. I've done that. That's fun. But at the end of the day, it can't be both. And these are the two predominant views. My view is the second, that you are saved because you are already his elect. Now, what I'm not going to do for you this morning is I'm not going to spend my time here just investigating election and predestination. You do understand that volumes and volumes and volumes of literature have been written just on these words. So I'm not going to pretend to answer the questions. I'm not even going to pretend to really scratch the surface. I'm just giving you a basis from which I'm moving forward. And then if someone wants to bring it up when we have our men's gathering, more power to you. So the two views, that you become his elect when you are saved. The other view is that you are saved because you are already his elect. Here's an example of the word in the Bible, Romans 9, 11. Though they were not yet born, referring to Esau and to Jacob, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The context of that is the word has been said that God loved East, God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. And this is Paul's way of getting into an explanation of that comment made by God himself. And you can read the rest of Romans 9 to get a fuller explanation of these things. So elections all throughout the scriptures, but predestination is as well. 
namely Ephesians 1 and also in Romans in several places, also in Revelation, which we'll see those things in just a little bit. So here's predestination view number one, that on the basis of God's omniscience, he predestines or he predetermines to salvation those he, would, those he knew would choose him. In other words, he looks into the future, saw whoever would choose him, and those are the ones that he predestined, right? And that's a, that's a, that, that's a view. I, w- I would even say that's probably the majority view amongst evangelicals. That's what I was raised to believe. That's probably what you were raised to believe. And if that's what you hold now, I'm not deeming you a heretic. I do find that there might be some problems in that view. I do find some flaw in that view as far as I can understand as a finite, finite man who has changed his mind on so many different doctrines over the years. Understand this. Understand it. I'm just giving you a basis from which I can launch. So that's view number one. View number two is this. This is the one that I hold, that God, not because of anything good or bad that anyone has done, but according to the purpose of his will, according to his good pleasure, the scripture says, he would predetermine those who would be saved. Therefore, his predetermination ensures salvation. You look at me as a Christian man, it's because before the foundation of the world, I believe, God set his affection upon me ensuring that at the appointed day of salvation, the book of Acts, I would believe. That's, that's my view. I know it's the view of many in here. Some of you might be indifferent. Some of you may say, I've never really wrestled with that. I choose not to. But those are the two views, and they're older than any of us combined, and much, much, much more than that. But you see their Bible words. For example, Romans 8, 28 through 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know what they call this, the golden chain of redemption. And a chain is significant as an explanation to this because if you have a chain that is taut holding something or pulling something, if you have one link that breaks, you have a major, major problem. All of these are interconnected, so it's important that we understand how these terms are defined. Again, I'm not going to go through an exposition of Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29, but you need to understand this view of election, this view of predestination, it really hinges in large part on the idea of foreknowledge. How do we use rightly the word election, or how do we rightly use the word predestination? That depends on your usage of the term foreknow or foreknowledge. Because that is the phrase that is turned here. Listen again. It says, for those who are called according to his purpose, context is salvation for those whom he, what, foreknew. Now the question is, did God look back and say, hmm, I saw that Sarah Birchfield would one day confess me, therefore I'm going to predestine her towards salvation. I do struggle with that because Sarah is the determining factor there. Because God saw that Sarah would determine, that Sarah would choose to end up 
here. And many would disagree with me. I'm just saying where I see this and how it breaks down in my mind logically as I'm interacting with the scripture. And I'll pull in other stuff later. So is that foreknew or is foreknow that God set his affections upon before the foundation of the world? Either way, this took place before the foundation of the world. And this matters when we get to sheep, by the way. Okay, I promise. So does God look back and say, okay, in my omniscience, which he is, he knows all things. He knew one day Sarah here would say, yes, this is what I want. I, I, I pray the sinner's prayer or whatever business. You say, I want you, I need you, all these things. Not the sinner's prayer praise, uh, saves you. A lot of people uh, are lost and going to hell because they banked on a sinner's prayer. But that's another conversation for another time. But an honest outpouring of desire to come to Christ, an expression of need an expression of someone to come and rescue me from my darkness that I've earned for myself, a changing of heart, and a gaining of a Savior. Okay, so that kind of thing, that happened. Did God look and say, I saw that you would do that? So because you determined this, I'm going to call you, I'm going to predestine you, I'm going to justify you, I'm going to glorify you, I'm going to do all these things for you, or... Or was it that God set his affections upon you? And because he set those affections upon you, he ensured that one day at the appointed time, this would be the root in your life. See, as a strong proponent of a big God and God's sovereignty, that filters the view for me. I look and I say, God is absolutely sovereign, absolutely in control. I look at my sin nature and I say, given the chance to choose anything that's not God, I would jump at it. Given the chance to follow my flesh, devoid of the Spirit of God, I would chase after it. I would run after it. I desire to chase after my flesh every single day in many, many forms. And the only thing that keeps me is the Spirit of God that has saved me. And you might say, what about the someone who's not saved? They don't chase after every, every single inclination and dirty, dark desire of their heart. Two things. First of all, every deed of theirs is filthy no matter what comes out at the other end because their righteousness is filthy rags. So don't be mistaken into thinking, but they're not all that bad. Yes, they are. Their good deeds are not good at all because they're not filtered through the righteousness of Christ. This all connects. It's a beautiful, beautiful theological thing that's happening here. So how do you understand, how do you interpret for no? All I've done is say, well, here's kind of my leanings. Well, here's something that I believe is heavy hitting. When you study this word and you or anybody in here could go and do an honest study at the resources that are at the tip of your fingers and look at the study of this word, not only in context do I think it makes sense, but more specifically, the actual word, the actual word that is used because of the way the word, the word is formed in that Greek. And not everybody knows Greek. That's why I say in your, in your, at your fingertips you can get access to how this is rightly parsed out, how this is rightly understood. And at the end of the day, what it says is that God set his affections upon, that God foreloved you. This is exactly what this means. It's also synonymous with to be predestined, to be marked out. I think it's understood that God knows all things. I struggle to look at this verse and say, well, Paul's just telling them that God knows all things. 
it was commonplace to recognize that God is omniscient. God knows all things. And then why does Paul spend the entirety of the next chapter just about defending a point that seems to side with the second view of election and the second view of predestination that I presented to you? This all corresponds to our understanding of what Jesus meant when he said that you do not believe because you are not his sheep. It doesn't stay this heavy the whole time or this technical this whole time. I'm not saying you have to agree with everything I'm saying, but that is the basis. That is how I approach the text. That is how I see this. That's how I've understood it for years. That's how I've wrestled with it for years. And I didn't arrive at this point overnight. I fought tooth and nail against this very thing for years and years and years. I built straw man after straw man. I built man-made constructs in order to understand this or defend against this. And it just couldn't hold for me. So my mind is changed on this for over a decade now. So here we have it. This all corresponds to our understanding of what Jesus meant when he said that you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So here's how we get into it. With that, what I just described to you as the backdrop, that as a very brief overview or a basis from which I am launching. So then the question is, when Jesus says to these Pharisees who demand that he speak plainly to them, how does Jesus respond to them? He says, I have. Again and again and again. But you don't believe. Why? Because you're not my sheep. You're not my sheep. The Bible seems to make a distinction between those who are sheep and those who are goats. Goats very much being the negative. There will be a dividing of these, the book of Matthew tells us, at the end of all things. The goats clearly representing those who are not sheep, Clearly representing those who are in unbelief. Clearly representing here the Pharisees that remain in their unbelief. By contrast, the sheep who are in belief. But let me say this. Sheep is not a word equivalent for saint. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sheep is not a word equivalent for saint. Sheep is a word equivalent for elect. How does that work? Because we don't become sheep. We do become saved. But sheep is not a word equivalent for saint. It's not the word equivalent for those who are saved. Sheep is the word equivalent for elect. There are a lot of elect people that are not saved right now. But the surety is this, that because of God's providence, His sovereignty, His divine election, decrees, and predestination, is that they, at their appointed day of salvation, Acts chapter 13, verse 48, I believe, they will profess Jesus Christ and follow Him. That's tremendous hope. That should give you hope for family that's lost, that it's not self-determination that brings them there. Not their own or not yours. Even though you pray it, you would will it if you could. You desire it. You would do whatever you could. Maybe you'd cut off a limb if you could see your son or your daughter or your mother or your sister or your father or whoever come to Christ. But that doesn't do it, does it? It's the divine, the divine and beautiful decrees of God that brings these things to pass. So sheep is not the word equivalent to a saint or to someone who's saved. The term sheep refers to those whom God has appointed to salvation, God's elect. Not all sheep have come to Christ, but that doesn't make them any less his 
sheep. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, here's where we get to it right here. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, listen to the language. This is where election is settled. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in, in his heavenly places, even as he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. Those he foreknew, he predestined. There is an action accompanied to that term, just as there is an action accompanied to when we become sheep. He predestined us for adoption through his son, Jesus Christ, according to his will. When? Before the foundation of the world. The Lord took action on a passive agent, and he ensured that this person would come to Christ from the riches of his grace according to his will. What about Revelation 13, 8? Whether you read this literally or you read it allegorically, it rings true all the same. Revelation 13, 8, it says, this is the first beast represented, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe, people, nation, and tongue. And all who dwell on earth, listen, all who dwell on earth will worship that beast. Except everyone whose name has not been written. Wait, sorry. It says, authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and Nathan and Nathan, sorry, nation. <laughs> and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. What does that imply? That names were written before the foundation of the world. What does that say? What does Ephesians 1 say? It says that before the foundation of the world that we were predestined to adoption as sons. In other words, a man doesn't become a, a man doesn't believe so that he becomes a sheep. A man believes because he already is a sheep. What do you think Jesus meant? Austin talked about it just a few weeks ago. When Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this flock. Here's Christ's agenda. He's he came to, to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to gather to himself those sheep, those who were, who were before the foundations of the world. God laid on them his affections. God for loved them. God knew them, not in a, oh, I know who you are. That's obvious, but I knew you as in I set my affections upon you. I called you. I've decreed that you might come to me. And those, Jesus says, are the ones that God has given to Christ. So a man doesn't believe, so he becomes a sheep. He believes because he is a sheep. And that's what Jesus means, I believe, when he says that. So what does this mean for the unbelieving Jews in the text? Their unbelief was rooted in their deadness. We do this thing a lot of times practically as, as, as Christians where we take whatever our sin is and we try to trace its root and we say, what is the root of my sin? And we find unbelief every time. I suffer from the sin of Matthew 6 version of anxiety. 
not, not me necessarily, but let's speaking understood here, we suffer from that kind of anxiety. You know, that Matthew 6 calls a sin. It's because you don't believe that Jesus really has your best interest in mind, no matter what you're going through, no matter what your family's going through. Functionally, practically, that's the issue is you're struggling with unbelief in the moment. But what is the root cause of unbelief? I see my sin and it's rooted in unbelief, but what is the root of unbelief? It's not being called. It's not being part of God's elect. It's lostness. The root cause of unbelief is what? A dead heart. All are born with dead hearts, but not all are born as sheep. Until a dead heart is taken from stone and made flesh, there will be no belief. And belief and regeneration are inseparable. God is as perfect infinite grace he says I've called you I've foreknown you I've predestined you I've called you now I'm going to justify you and I'm going to glorify you I'm bringing you from the guttermost all the way to the uttermost I'm taking you all the way so what do you do with the doctrine of election and predestination in terms of its relationship to your role as a sojourner as a missionary as someone who's to be evangelistic you may look at this text and think, if it was pointless for Jesus to witness these people, if he's saying, look, I've shown you these things you're not going to believe or you're not my sheep, then what's the point in me trying to do this? Well, first of all, there's a big difference in you and Jesus. There's a big difference in what you know and what Jesus knows. But at the end of the day, we do exactly what the Scripture says. The Scripture makes it clear, like in Proverbs, he who wins souls is wise. It's clear when he spoke to Peter and he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. That's the gospel. You want to see life change? It has to be done and founded in and through and by the gospel. How will they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The gospel is clear. And who I would suggest is one of the strongest proponents of election and predestination next to Jesus would be the Apostle Paul as far as his right. And he is one that speaks most towards evangelism. So you can't say, ah, then just don't witness because there's no point. No, <laughs> no, that would be to deny the clear text of Scripture. Because how is it that God has ordained that he might bring those appointed to salvation to salvation through the gospel, exclusively through the gospel? So those are two heavy-hitting doctrines. The doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of election. The doctrine of eternal security. Listen to this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You hear that? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So whose hand do you seem to be in? Jesus and God the Father. And who's inhabiting you? The Holy Spirit of God. You are completely engulfed, consumed, and encamped with and by the Trinity himself. He says, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. I get this image of a of a, of, a, of a father or a mother and their child walking through a parking lot or walking somewhere where there are potential dangers all around. And if your kid's anything like some of mine are or have been or like I was or maybe you were, you want to 
you know, tug and jerk and pull to get away from mama or to get away from daddy because everything else catches your eye. Everything else has appeal to you. But who doesn't let you go despite your efforts? Mama and daddy because they love you. Now on an infinite scale, if you are in the grasp of the Holy Spirit of God, what can snatch you away from him? I think the implications here are this fourfold. This implies that there will be those who try and snatch you away. I think the second implication is this implies the sovereign and supernatural keeping power of the Savior is at work always. Let that be an encouragement to you, brothers and sisters. As one pastor said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. This gives me great hope for my children. Something that concerns me or has concerned me in my life is wondering if this profession of faith you know, that maybe my kids make or have made, if, it, if it's real, is it real? Because I see their childness, I see their true nature come out all throughout their life, just as they see mine. So I'm like, okay, what should I be looking for? Is this thing legitimate? You know, why is my nine-year-old still acting like a nine-year-old if they're in Christ? You know, I, 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 these are some struggles that I have, but then I'm brought to reality and I'm given great comfort when I think of the fact that my God's sovereign and supernatural keeping power is at work in those whom he has rescued. And he is conforming to his image. I think this implies the perseverance of the saints. If Jesus and the Father keep you to the end, it means you are truly his sheep. This gives me great hope again for my children. And finally, of the fourth implication is I think this not snatching you out of his hand implies the magnificence of the shepherd's love for his sheep. We are his and we are his beloved. And it's the love of God, his glory, the love of God, that binds us to the shepherd through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I see predestination, I see election, I see the deity, I see the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the security of the believer, I see the deity of Christ. Last one, deity of Christ, quickly. Verses 30 through 33 say, I and the Father are one. Jesus responds to them. They're questioning him. You know, Jesus goes through the issue of being sheep. And then he makes this comment. He says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews do what? They pick up stones to stone him in just a minute. So just like we, we investigated the comment that Jesus made that you do not know me or believe because you are not my sheep, we have to investigate, although it won't take as much, to get into what Jesus means when he says, I and the Father are one. You see a Jehovah's Witness if you sit with him and you bring this text up, which seems to be clearly uh, a text promoting the deity of Christ, they will say, well, he's one in purpose. And I would say, absolutely, he's one in purpose. No question about it. But Pharisees don't stone people for saying we have the same intentions. Because the Pharisees would say, we have the same intentions as God. I can say, I and the Father are one to a degree because he wants good things for my life as those things are uh, in accord with his scripture. I want those things for my life. So we are on the same track there. We are purposing the same way. I want Haven Ridge to grow in all the right ways as disciples of Christ. Not through gimmickry or any of that, but through the solid foundational teaching of the gospel of Jesus. I want that to happen. I think God wants that. So, yeah, I'm unified with God in that. So there's so many things that I can say as a mere man, 
that are consistent with I and the Father are one that I won't be stoned for. But Jesus didn't say any of those things. The one thing he said is the one thing they wanted to stone him for, and that was because, as they say in this text, you make yourself to be God. They picked up stones, and Jesus answered them. He says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which, which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. It's just clear. And what's ironic about this text is that our interpretation is given to us by the Pharisees themselves, which they would not have intended to do. The fact that they pick up stones is saying what we all are suspecting, that Jesus is actually promoting his own deity. That's why they were wanting to kill him. Leviticus 24, 16 makes it clear in their eyes that I can pick up a stone and I can kill this man for blasphemy because that's what they saw him doing. And blasphemy is not saying I want good things for the world just like God wants good things for the world. I want good, healthy things to happen to, the, to Christ's church just like God wants good things to happen for Christ's church. That's not blasphemy. Because if that was the case, they wouldn't have picked up stones at the end of the day, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. So here's one of those rare moments of irony with that you can look at the Pharisees. You can say, yep, I can tell by their actions what's actually happening. What they thought Jesus was saying is actually what Jesus was saying. He made himself equal to God, and based on their response, that exact, that's exactly how they understood him. So it points to the deity of Christ. You see it. It's right there in the text. And the text continues and it says, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. This is what the book of Psalms says. This is what the law said that they understood. And basically, don't get hung up on that whole issue right there. Lots of work are produced on this. Simply put, they were given divine rights by God. And so what is meant there is not that they're actually gods. This is not a polytheistic thing that Jesus is promoting. He's just saying, you've been given privileges. But the language that's given to you, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't bat an eye at that, but yet I do this good work or I say this thing and you try to stone me. Verse 35 says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, Jesus is speaking of himself, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. Listen to this, he said, if I'm doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. This is interesting and this is what we're closing with. He says, if I do the works of my Father, and then you don't believe me? He said, but if I do them even though you do not believe me, listen to this. He says, believe my works. Believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Perhaps these marvelous doctrines... Perhaps they don't, in your mind, endear you or make Christ more endearing to you. Maybe you sit there and you say, I've heard these things and it doesn't stir my affections necessarily. Or maybe you would just say, I have a hard time really being enamored with Jesus. Because sometimes we, we're in that kind of rut or pit where it's just hard for us to sit there and say, oh, I love you so much, Jesus. And sometimes you're like, I'm, just, that's not, I'm not feeling it. I feel kind of distant. I feel kind of awkward. I, I just... I. I feel like I'm in a dark place. I'm just not loving everything right now. I'm not loving you very great right now. 
I think what Jesus is saying here is so gracious. Because he says, look, if you, if, you, if you can't get here, start here. If you can't just accept what I'm saying, look at my works. Now make no mistake about it. The miraculous works of Jesus are a byproduct of who he is. It's who he is that we celebrate first and foremost. Because what he does is a product of who he is. If he was not who he is, you wouldn't have the works. So we celebrate the man. We celebrate God in Christ. But I think, I think Jesus very, very helpfully says, if you're having these times, this is how it applies to us, I think. If you're having these seasons, just reflect on my work. Reflect on what I've done in your life. Reflect on what I've done in this world. Reflect on what I've done on the cross. And maybe the God will be gracious enough to cause the Holy Spirit to take us to a place where we can truly savor Jesus, not just for who he is, but for what he's done. Because at the end of all things, when we stand before God and we're in the presence of Jesus in heaven, the glory of heaven is Jesus. The glory of heaven is not, to my understanding, Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to heal you as you go. We're there. I don't, it's not, I don't think it's creating. It's done. So, so what is it? It's, it's him. It's who he is. That's the glory of heaven. And I think it's very gracious of God to say, hey, if you can't get there just by looking at me, look at my works and let them provide the path so that you can get there. And maybe that's helpful application for you in your season of struggle, in your season of you know, affectionlessness, if I can create a word for you. He says here that if you struggle to believe in him, believe in his works. See his works and may the Holy Spirit graciously endear you to Jesus himself. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, we pray that you would make Christ more lovely to us than he is. Lord, I think even the person in the room that, that, that has the loftiest view of Jesus is still a view that's hindered by our humanity. It's hindered by our sinful nature. Lord, I pray that although I know that we will never experience Jesus in this, in this life like we will in our next, but God, I do ask that you would allow us to experience him more. We can connect better, more deeply with Jesus. Lord, that our affections might be stirred for Christ every day. God, that we might become so overwhelmed and excited about who Christ is and what he's done that we cannot keep silent. Well, we need you to do that supernatural work. Just as you supernaturally keep us through your sovereign power and grace, we ask that you would keep us and cause us to well up with fervency and love and excitement for who Jesus is. Jesus, thank you for your patience and thank you for, 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 for always pointing us to who you are. Whether it's, whether it's slightly veiled or whether it's just wide open, thank you. Lord, and for all the things that we talked about today, Lord, I know so many things are up for debate and other things are not. Help us to rightly divide the word of God as we approach it and understand it and as we chew on these things. 
Help us to be able to have mature, open conversation that will not divide us, but that will sharpen us. Because as it stands, we will never all agree on everything, I think, until that day. And so, Lord, help us to keep one another sharp, but always to point people to the glory of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What we're going to do now is we will... Uh,